Omagyanatti Mirandasjan, Gyanang Janasalakaya, Chakshurun Militam Jena, Tasmai Sri Guravena Maha, Sidantot Palasara Nityarasikam, Hamsam Vilasat Makam, Audariakya Sudam, Seva Karanam Vishramba Bhakti Pradam, Yachna Yukti Vichakshanam Tvagabido, Vaisista Saktya Sada, Vandeham Tripurari Namakayatim Sri Bhakti Vedantinam, Vanchakalpatarubhyascha, kripa sindubhya evacha, patitanam pavanebhyo, vaisnavebhyo, namo namaha. Namo mahavaranyaya, krishna prema pradayate, krishnaya, krishna chaitanya, namne goratvise namaha. He krishna karuna sindu, dina bandhu, jagatpate, gopesha, gopika, kanta, radha, kanta, namostate. Tapta kanchana gaurangi radhe vrindavaneshvari vrishabhanu sute devi pranamami haripriye. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhara Shivasani Gaurabhakta Vrinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare Harer nama, harer nama, harer nama, eva kevalam, kalaunasti eva, nasti eva, nasti eva, gatiranyatam. Welcome, everyone. I promised to uh, give you during these classes the solutions to all of life's problems. When in doubt, read chapter two. And uh, this life in this world, obviously, is full of problems, big and small. So basically, uh, chapter two of the Bhagavad Gita has the solution for every situation imaginable. Parvanabha Maharaj has kindly permitted me to share my thoughts in the second chapter, uh, which is said to include all the topics of the Gita in the condensed format. Uh, so in a way, I'll be going uh, through the entire book hopefully in these four classes. Uh, in this Tatavik series I'm following in the footsteps of Bhaktirasa Prabhu who spoke beautifully about the essential essence of the Gita, the Chatu Sloki, and Shamananda Prabhu who shared so many interesting points about the first chapter and the connection between the battle of Kurukshetra and the uh, Rathayatra and the devotees uh, in Vrindavan. Shamananda's series was uh, called Arjuna's Yoga of Despair. And uh, as anyone who's read the Gita knows, the second chapter begins uh, with Arjuna still expressing his, his despair. Uh, I personally have had some moments of despair during the past days as uh, I had several months to prepare naturally left it to the last few days and then various obstacles just kept piling up uh, uninvited unexpected guests showed up and um, there were meetings uh, that i absolutely had to attend all kinds of deadlines and things piling up and the last straw was that yesterday morning our wi-fi stopped working i had to spend hours trying to get it back up. So I'm actually using a system, like a backup system. So I'm hoping that you'll be able to 
hear me okay since the Wi-Fi, despite my efforts, still doesn't work. But at some point I realized uh, that these are, what I'm going to be talking about is Bhakti Yoga, obviously. Uh, the yoga of loving devotion uh, and service to others. And the unexpected guests that I mentioned were uh, bike travelers contacting me over a network that we've also used, my partner Kamaksha and myself, while traveling abroad, uh, inviting ourselves sort of to stay with total strangers who have kindly opened their homes to us and I realized that if if I don't help out these tired hungry cold travelers who have been wild camping in the cool autumn nights of Finland then what kind of a devotee am I really like am I going to be talking about service while refusing to serve a weary, weary traveler so in the end things always work out and the cyclists left this morning, I believe, happy and their bellies full of prasadam. And here we are now. So I, I first came in contact with the Gita in the late 90s through Kamalaksa, uh, who introduced me to uh, uh, Srila Prabhupada's books. So my first uh, Gita reading was uh, a finished translation of, of uh, Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita as it is. And then a few years later, Guru Maharaj's uh, Gita commentary, the Bhagavad Gita's feeling and philosophy came out and I immediately read that as well. I've always been super impressed by how well this ancient text uh, has stood the test of time, how how well it resonates with a modern person, how sharp and valid its insights are, despite all the time has, that has passed. The surroundings that we have here, as I speak to you today, are very different than some kind of an ancient Gita uh, reciter would have had. But at the same time, I, the struggles described in the Gita feel very familiar. Many more translations and commentaries of the Gita have been added to our library over the years. We uh, go to secondhand bookstores a lot, especially Kamalaksha. And whenever we see an interesting looking Gita, preferably old and worn out and mystical, we buy it. So, so we have several copies on the shelf now. And most recently, I also purchased the, uh, this edition. Banu uh, Swami Maharaja's translation of Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur's Gita commentary, the Sararta Varsini Tika, uh, which I've really enjoyed reading. So in his commentary, Guru Maharaj uh, divides the second chapter into different sections, uh, where the verses from 1 to 9 describe Arjuna's despair, verses 10 to 11, uh, are Krishna's dismissal of Arjuna's doubts. In verses 12 to 30, uh, Krishna brings the discussion to a higher level, a philosophical level. 
Uh, in verses 31 to 55, Krishna addresses Arjuna's social religious concerns. Uh, in verses uh, 56 to 71, uh, Krishna talks about how the enlightened move in this world. And in verse 72, he concludes the chapter with the goal of spiritual life. Vishwana Chakrati Thakur also points out that in verses 40 to 45, bhakti is being described, even though it's a little bit hidden, uh, it's still clearly there when you know what to, to look for. So in today's talk, I'm planning to cover verses 1 to 18. Uh, and uh, like I said, we begin with the despair. Arjuna's plight, I think, is really recognizable. This is a question that a lot of us struggle with in our everyday life. How to live a good life? Uh, how do we make good choices in a world that's so complicated and, and where each and every matter can be looked at from so many different angles and we have so much information available that it only makes things harder for us. I'm gonna give you an example that I think illustrates how hard it is to be a good person. I like tomatoes, all kinds of tomatoes, fresh and canned and boiled and fried and roasted, ketchuped, if that's the word. I like tomatoes. And you would think that a tomato is a pretty innocent thing to buy, healthy, tasty. So many nice things can be cooked out of tomatoes and, and offered to Krishna. But buying tomatoes in Finland in the winter is a real struggle if you want to be a good person and buy a good tomato. We have a large variety of tomatoes in the store, not making it any easier, obviously. You get a lot of uh, really tasty, nice, uh, juicy, sweet Spanish tomatoes. And you would think, think that that's a good option there. It's a warmer climate, probably a good place to grow tomatoes where they'll grow nicely naturally. At the same time, it's pretty far away. So they get shipped from the other side of Europe, uh, which obviously adds to the emission to the ecological footprint of the tomato. We also know by now that the working conditions in Spain are terrible. There are a lot of people working there under horrendous uh, conditions, getting paid very little. There are all kinds of human rights violations. They use uh, lots of toxic pesticides that end up in the environment and, and also in the bodies of the people working there. So Spanish tomato isn't really a good tomato. So next to them, we have a Finnish tomato. Okay, locally produced, yay. Well, the problem is that Finland is a cold country. So the Finnish tomatoes are grown in, a, in greenhouses, meaning huge emissions. Of course, depending on what kind of electricity the greenhouse is going to use, which opens a whole another can of worms. So the Finnish tomato, although being more locally grown and probably under better working conditions, maybe the supervision is a little bit more strict also when it comes to pesticides. 
still can't be really described as being very uh, sustainable. I've heard that Polish tomatoes would be the perfect option for Finns, being like closer than Spain, but warmer than Finland. I've never seen one in the store, but I'm still waiting and hoping that one day a Polish tomato will appear and uh, save me from my struggles. Uh, Dutch tomatoes, I often buy, they're tasty and seem like a sort of a decent option, but I'm pretty confident that if I looked into it, I would discover horrendous problems with them as well. So what I'm trying to say here is that we can't fully avoid violence in this world, even if we eat vegetarian or vegan, if we, even if we try to be good, we end up sometimes eating the wrong tomato. We step on ants, we slap mosquitoes without thinking or maybe even chase them down. It's said that we kill tiny creatures even by just breathing in. So I'm trying to be good. I mean, I, I really feel Arjuna's pain. He's trying to be good and, and he's bringing out all these great points in chapter one that the reader can really relate to. I mean, I remember reading chapter one for the first time and thinking that, that this is an awesome nonviolent book that's probably gonna continue with you know him going off to the mountains to meditate and so on. And then the whole, whole um, uh, setup gets turned upside down uh, with the violence externally actually being embraced. But, but yeah, like Arjuna, we easily fall into despair. We feel powerless faced with all these uh, difficult um, choices. And uh, there are so many missions that we could devote ourselves to in this world. Uh, I could start growing tomatoes myself, you know, to make sure that I have the best possible tomato, but there's so little time and so many vegetables. So, so we need to compromise. We need to make choices, but luckily, as I said, all the answers to all of life's problems are in the second chapter, as I will demonstrate to you in September 21. So welcome once again. So in verse two, uh, Krishna tells Arjuna that this faint-heartedness isn't suitable for a man of his reputation, of Arjuna's reputation. And this was exactly the kind of a thing where, kind of a moment where reading the Gita for the first time, I. I was thinking, yes, like the reputation, that's the type of, uh, you know, superficial nonsense that we have to give up to become spiritual. Like, surely we shouldn't be too concerned about our reputation. Isn't that exactly the kind of thing that we should, shouldn't be attached to and, and that we should completely give up? But uh, reading on one of the things you realize about the Gita is that one of the main themes really is avoiding false renunciation. And that's exactly what's going on here. Uh, Krishna points out later in the book over and over again that false renunciation, uh, external renunciation, isn't going to take us anywhere in the spiritual path. Probably it will end up uh, sort of uh, 
achieving the opposite through renouncing things artificially or too early on the path will end up sort of bouncing back to the other extreme. I'm also thinking of that Arjuna is a warrior and, and that's sort of the role that he's playing, the job that he has. Of course, this, all, this is all Leela and Arjuna has been put under illusion by Krishna so that Krishna gets to speak the Gita. If Arjuna would just, just have picked up his bow and fought, then it wouldn't be much of a discussion, wouldn't be much of a book for us to read and discuss. So uh, Arjuna needs to say these things and, and needs to sort of um, pretend to be, be in ignorance here. But still speaking of false pronunciation, I, I, the way I see it is that while we're still in this world and want to enjoy it, we need to kind of play by the rules. Uh, Renunciation on the path of bhakti should uh, arise from higher taste. It shouldn't just be uh, a desire to avoid something unpleasant. It should be, uh, it should be arising from attachment to, to serving Krishna. So that's, I feel that that's what, what's being demonstrated here. Later on in, in chapter three, uh, Krishna will elaborate on this theme and and say in, in verse 333 that even wise people act according to the nature they have acquired in this world. People follow their acquired nature. What will repression accomplish? No use trying to pretend to be someone else. Uh, in 335, he goes even further to say that it's better to die engaged in accordance with one's own nature for others' duties invite peril. Now dying, engaged in one's duty maybe sounds a little bit overtly dramatic to someone like me who mainly works sitting indoors by a table. Uh, our, the life of a warrior feels pretty foreign to most of us in today's world. But, but I was thinking of the surgeon uh, that I encountered many years ago when I had, as many of you know, I've had a lot of issues with my feet in the past and, and they were amputated, which gave me the opportunity to uh, uh, walk, move, to have much better mobility with, with prosthetic feet. And I was thinking of that surgeon and maybe it wasn't like the happiest day of his life, you know, waking up in the morning, knowing that he was going to sew off a young girl's legs that day. Maybe he was also wondering if it really was the right choice and, and if he would regret it or I would regret it afterwards. But if he had gotten up in the morning and, and stayed at home whining that he doesn't want to be a surgeon and it's such messy work and there will be blood and smells and sounds and bones crunching and so on. I don't want to be a surgeon anymore. I want to go meditate in Nepal. If he hadn't done his duty, you know, and, and taken out that saw and cut off my legs, then I would never had all these opportunities would never have opened themselves to me. So 
you know, some jobs are messier than others and Arjuna's job certainly is pretty messy, but, but there also are examples of people sort of closer to us or easier to relate to whose jobs include violence and, and pretty tough decisions. And a surgeon might be one of them, like making these life and death decisions on a daily basis. And uh, I'm grateful that this guy didn't run off to meditate somewhere, but did his job that day. As an artist, I personally thought of art as my dharma in the sense that doing art isn't the easiest way to make a living and dharma isn't always the easiest path. A lot of times it's the harder, the right thing to do is the hard thing to do. And um, being an artist, I, I'm confident that if, if I had taken sort of the safe route that my parents tried to push me into sort of pick the job that would offer me more financial security. Uh, I think I would have deeply regretted that. And, and I think I, I would have probably at some point in life turned to art anyway, since I had such a strong passion for it. I was so, so drawn to it but of course it's not so easy for everyone to see their path everyone doesn't have a passion like that and I do recognize that I've been very privileged to be able to to do art and to follow my heart so to speak uh, preparing for these classes I also read uh, Simon Hansa Sundarbapa Prabhu's book Yoga and the Dark Night of the Soul where he speaks of the Gira in, in a really uh, sweet way. He speaks of these dark nights, the dark moments that we have our own inner battlegrounds that we have to face. And uh, he, he put it really nicely in his book. He says that we each have our own potential, a unique contribution to make in the world. And that's what our dharma is, that, that potential and living according to, to dharma means fulfilling our, our potential. And I think one way of trying to find, find where you have most potential is asking yourself, where can I serve? Which way can I use my potential uh, for the greater good to serve others, to serve guru, to serve Krishna? Sunar Gopal Prabhu also points out that it's no coincidence that Arjuna is faced with these questions on the battlefield, because it's exactly during difficult times that we're forced to ask these questions on how we really should act. Like anyone can sort of fly through sunny skies on autopilot without having to think that much. But when the storm comes, we need to kind of grab the steering wheel or whatever it's called on an airplane and um, and really ask ourselves what's the best course of action and this has really been my experience as well uh, having all these difficulties with my body with my feet and being forced to sort of face the limits of material enjoyment 
at a pretty young age while many others at least it felt so me were just cruising along in their beautiful healthy bodies now of course we all fight our own battles and it's important to recognize that that the happiest looking person might be the unhappiest on the inside and and to look at others with compassion that i certainly didn't have as a teenager being envious of other people's healthy bodies but the older you get the more you realize that there's no such thing as a healthy body all bodies fall apart but when it comes to spiritual practice or doing art or any kind of a demanding endeavor i really like to think of these words by the author doris lessing whatever you're meant to do do it now the conditions are always impossible so we're always facing some kind of a struggle and, and thinking that we'll deal with these big questions, these sort of life and death questions or dharmic questions later is really a trap because that day will never come when everything's sort of well organized and balanced. Of course, Guru Maharaj talks a lot about vertical growth and horizontal growth and that we need to have certain basics in place in order to be able to uh, focus better on our practice but i like the idea that whatever you're meant to do do it now just start doing it whatever it is you know pick up your bow and saw and um, pencil and fight because there's uh, no one knows what the future brings but today might be impossible but today is what we have and tomorrow is probably going to be impossible as well anyway so yeah arjun is in an impossible situation but so are we but we push on so still in the second verse uh in his commentary guru maharaj points our attention to the first line shri bhagavan uvacha and here krishna is called shri bhagavan and the different names used in the gita are obviously super interesting and and there's a lot of uh, information packed into the choice of words. And for that reason also, I find it really helpful and useful to read different commentaries and different translations with different authors bringing out different points. So Guru Maharaj writes that there's no meaning to Bhagavan without Sri, the goddess of fortune. Krishna is never alone as we know, and even in the battlefield, we'll see that his thoughts go to his beloved in Vrindavan. Jiva Goswami has also written that uh, Bhagavan is uh, he whose nature is such that whoever comes in touch with him cannot resist feeling moved to worship and adore his charming personality. Also from Guru Maharaj's commentary. So we're diving directly into Bhakti Yoga in the second verse of the second chapter. Uh, we can see here how bhakti is constantly present in the Gita, even in this uh, sort of setting the scene verses. So I'm not going to go through all the verses. I'm sort of jumping ahead to ones that spoke to me especially. And if you want to, you can of course always go back and read through the whole chapter but but i've picked some verses that that i felt were 
uh, especially inspiring. And the next one is verse six, where Arjuna's helplessness really comes out. I no longer know which is better, conquering or being conquered. He says that he shall not care to live if he kills the sons of Dhritarashtra standing before him. So reading the Gita for the first time, I think many of you share the feeling that I have of that I had of confusion going through the first chapter and trying to figure out who all these people are and why so many of them have names beginning with a D or a B and how can anyone tell them apart. Now, I finally read the Mahabharata this year. After all these years of reading the Gita, I finally decided that I wanted to sort of get the whole story of the battle of the war of Kurukshetra and and its background. So I wanted to also share a few words in case there's someone here who hasn't read the Mahabharata yet or just some thoughts on it. I always kind of felt that the first chapter of the Gita was kind of separate from the rest because it was still, it felt like it was describing something that was happening in the middle of a battle. And then we, go to the discussion so i almost felt like wondered if it could be left out and and i recommend to everyone who feels this way that that you listen to to shamananda's classes from last spring because he he really like i said brought out many nice points and you'll see how the first chapter definitely belongs in the gita because there are so many things packed into it but it also helps if you read the Mahabharata, to put the first chapter sort of into context and, and to see who all these people with names beginning with D or B are. Dhritarashtra, who's mentioned here, uh, was the king of the Kuru dynasty, whose sons were the Kauravas, and they were Arjuna's op opponents in the Kurukshetra war. Dhritarashtra, I think, wasn't really, isn't really an evil man, but he's very attached to his son, Duryodhana, also beginning with D, uh, like too attached to actually stop his son from committing really, really evil deeds. So we can maybe see like a warning there of, of this sort of uh, blindness to, to a loved one's faults, him also being blind in the sense of not seeing with his eyes, but simultaneously metaphorically blind. There are a lot of heroes in, in the Mahabharata who are doing things that don't really feel that heroic to a modern reader, very sort of uh, faulty characters or flawed characters in, in many ways. And uh, a lot of social religious rituals and rules that might be hard to uh, relate to but in the end i felt that the whole epic with all the battle scenes was clearly pointing in one single direction krishna bhakti and the reason why i i had this strong realization was mainly the story of draupadi also beginning with the very central character in the mahabharata uh, who has five husbands who are supposed to protect her we're being told in the book that 
that the husband is to the protector of the wife and the best course of action for the wife is to serve and worship the husband because he'll take care of her. And then we see this woman who's been very selflessly and devotedly serving, loving um, her five husbands. She's getting into trouble and the husbands not only fail to protect her, but it's actually one of the husbands who gets her into trouble. Uh, and so I, I really felt that there's a strong message here. When she disregards the husbands and you know, lifts her hands up and rises again above the material plane and turns to Krishna, everything works out. The husbands were basically useless in that situation. But Krishna, her devotion to Krishna was what saved her. And later in the book, there's a, another a bit similar scene where Uttara, who is also a great devotee, cries out to Krishna uh, when a deadly fiery weapon is threatening her and her unborn child. So I felt that there are a lot of battle scenes, but in between them, the reader is discreetly uh, directed to realize that, that these are the people of the, who, are, who we don't see on the battlefield. These are the people whose example we should really follow. In his commentary to getting back to the Gita, in his commentary to, to verse 6, uh, Guru Maharaj points out that Arjun here is demonstrating his eligibility for approaching a guru. Uh, later in, in the fourth chapter, in verse 434, Krishna will say that we must approach a wise person who has realized the truth. And in Srila Prabhupada's words, we must inquire from them submissively. So I feel that uh, here in verse 6, uh, Arjun lifts up his hands like Draupadi and Uttara and surrenders to Krishna as a good uh, disciple should. So his despair has led him into the situation where he uh, admits to his ignorance and helplessness and, and turns to the guru. Moving further on to um, verse 11, Krishna says, while speaking learned words, you lament for those not worthy of lamentation. The wise lament neither for the living or the dead. Guru Maharaj, mentions in his comment to this verse that Jiva Goswami points out the parallelism between this verse and uh, 1866, a verse that's very uh, dear and well known to all of us. Sarva dharman paritya ya mammekam saranam braja, aham tvam sarva papebio moksha isyami masucha. Forgoing all religious injunctions, take exclusive refuge in me. I shall deliver you from all sinful reactions. Do not fear. Do not fear. Don't lament. Don't worry for things that are not worth it. And reading this uh, made me think of the famous uh, serenity prayer uh, used in the 12-step programs, which, you know, deal with addiction. And we're all addicted to Maya in this world. So I, I feel that there are many great insights in the, I have a few friends who have gone through the 12-step program and they are still working 
I guess it's one of those things where the journey is the destination, just like like bhakti. And uh, and I feel there are many many interesting parallels uh, and many things we can learn from the twelve step program uh, to see our own weaknesses to sort of analyze our own situation in this world so the serenity prayer goes like this god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change courage to change the things i can and wisdom to know the difference so definitely i feel like what's being discussed here is not lamenting for that not worth lamentation you know things that we cannot change we shouldn't be worried about or lamenting over and not an easy uh not not such easy advice to follow but but there's a lot of wisdom here i think in verse 12 uh, krishna goes on to sort of uh, define those things that are worth or not worth of lamentation. Never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, nor shall any of us cease to exist in the future. So lamenting for the gross or subtle body isn't really worth while since the, these bodies both are here today and gone tomorrow. While the soul is eternal, so no need to lament for that either. In verse 13, Krishna says, the soul experiences changes of body from childhood to adulthood and will acquire another body after death. Wise persons are not deluded by this. So here he's specifically talking about the physical material body that undergoes dramatic changes even during this lifetime and um, therefore i mean we do lament obviously but what's the use the body will still go where it's going marching towards the grave no matter how much we try to fight it verse 14 uh, i especially like Prabhupada's translation here or son of kunti the non-permanent appearance of happiness and distress and their disappearance in due course are like the appearance and disappearance of winter and summer seasons they arise from sense perception O sign of bharat and one must learn to tolerate them without being disturbed guru Maharaj points out in his commentary that the self witnesses many changes of the mind so the subtle, subtle material body changes just like the tangible physical material body. Happiness and distress will come and go. I find this idea to be a great relief when the mind is tormenting me with memories of past mistakes and fears of the future. Embarrassments in the here and now. Even if my mind is out of balance, it doesn't mean that I am. I can always try to distance myself a bit. And I feel this is something where Gaudiya Vaishnavism really has a lot to offer to people in general, because a lot of people sort of identify with their mind. And, and if we could, uh, if we would successfully uh, convince people or be able to, uh, to share this, uh, idea of 
of the mind being some something separate from the self i think that would bring a lot of uh, solace to a lot of people struggling with their with their mind the mind might be broken but we're not broken a lot of things will appear and disappear you know over a lifetime lovers parents children jobs in my case feet they come and go i've always really liked this verse i like to think of things that come and go and often quote this verse or sort of uh, my own version of it and and in my life i've really found that even a little bit of philosophy even like a small small insight uh, on a theoretical level will help us so much when different things appear and disappear back when i was amputated i i was really in, in the beginning of my my bhakti path and my sadhana was even if possible even worse than today and and my understanding of the whole tradition was so elementary but just from reading the gita a couple of times and even like theoretically realizing that that my feet uh, are not me they asked me at the hospital how my or maybe it was afterwards. Anyhow, someone asked me how I felt that the amputation had affected my identity. And I was like, how could cutting off a piece of the body affect my identity? Like, I am who I am, regardless of what kind of material my feet are built out of. And I felt like, like I was speaking a different language to the per, uh, with, than that person since since they didn't have this concept of the soul and the mind and the body being separate entities. I was also listening to, a, to an old class by Guru Maharaj. There are a lot of uh, Bhagavad Gita classes uh, on sabdabrahman.com by Guru Maharaj from back in the day when, when his Gita commentary came out. And, and he was pointing out that even though we might not be able to live according to these high philosophical principles, even though it feels like they're so far away, it's still super important to study them and to know, you know, the goal, the sadhya of our sadhana, the goal of our practice. And, and I, I really uh, felt that that's been my experience, that even a tiny morsel of theoretical understanding will be very helpful in the in those difficult situations in life that uh, Sundar Gopal Prabhu calls the dark nights of the soul. Moving further to verse 16, Prabhupada writes in a poetic way of the non-existent there's no endurance and of the eternal there's no change it's beautiful but i have to admit that i i've had a hard time grasping exactly what he means here and uh, while the vishwana chakravati thakur uh, in his uh, commentary uh, in vanuswami maharaj's translation writes there is no permanent existence for the body and no cessation of existence for the soul so for me that really uh, opens up the thought 
behind Prabhupada's poetic language here. And what's uh, what I found really fascinating and interesting uh, about the Vishwana Chakravati Thakur's uh, commentary is that oftentimes he'll sort of uh, continue the discussion between Krishna and Arjun in his comments. So, so you get to kind of read these things that that are kind of in between the lines and because sometimes Guru Maharaj also has made a great effort in his book to bind the verses together to kind of show how the conversation flows, uh, which makes it much, much easier for a reader coming from a different background. I'm thinking maybe it would have been easier for someone uh, in the past living in India to, to sort of follow the the logic of the discussion, but these commentaries I've found really helpful to, to sort of see what's going on, like what Krishna and Arjuna might be thinking about in that moment. In verse 17, in Guru Maharaj's comment, he writes that he elaborates on the our relationship, our attach, attachments to material things. When we project ourselves into a material object, we then identify with it, considering it to be ours. I recently read somewhere something that uh, someone was pointing out that since we're all carbon-based life forms here on this planet, uh, the carbon atoms in us uh, have you know been here basically forever so some of the atoms in my body now might have previously taken the shape of a dinosaur or a bengali tiger or it could have been a meteorite in space coming down and smashing into the earth and i'm finding this extremely fascinating sort of this idea of carbon taking these different shapes and i'm sitting in front of a table that's made of wood and trees obviously are carbon-based uh, life forms as well. So basically like we're just two lumps of carbon sitting here, me and the table, and it's the consciousness that separates us. Uh, back in the days, like a few decades ago, my prosthetic feet would have also been made out of wood. So my feet and the feet and the table would have been of the same substance, just different in shape, but still, consciousness would have been the uh, thing that that separates us we can see we can recognize consciousness by seeing the signs of life birth growth reproduction sickness death uh, in these ways we bring matter to life we inhabit it but then what we also do like Grumarch pointed out here is that we also project our our consciousness onto them and then consider them ours uh, and form like a bond to specific lumps of matter. The roof of our house might be leaking. It actually is leaking right now. Uh, one of the depths of despair that I've sank into lately. But ultimately, why should you care if your house is fine. I mean, even if you care, as devotees, I'm sure you feel the pain of others, but 
it's still not the same with the same sense of urgency that I had when I came home and discovered a puddle of water on our floor because it's my house and my roof and my money that went into fixing the house. So uh, I, I really like the way that Guru Mars talks about this sort of the way that we, we give life, although we're not gods, but we can actually give life to things. We talk about things, toys and cars and houses as if they were living beings. In verse 18, Krishna says that only the bodies inhabited by the indestructible soul are subject to destruction. Therefore, get up and fight. So he's telling Arjun not to give up his dharma. There's nothing to fear, as we've seen, nothing to lament over, really. Commitment to dharma will purify the heart, enabling one to understand the nature of the self, as Guru Maharaj says and the further we move along on the path the more understanding we'll have the more purified our heart will be and the easier it'll be for us to do the right thing i was recently watching something silly on netflix and there was a person trying to talk another person into doing something that would have been against the rules and would have gotten them into trouble with the authorities so the first person says to says, how would they find out about this? How would they ever know? Meaning the authorities. And the second person goes, because I would tell them. And I was really impressed. Like they want to do things the right way. They would go and tell them. I thought that was like a, you know, I'm a sort of a rule-oriented person myself, which can sometimes be good and sometimes be bad. Uh, but I really relate to these, you know, these verses here where Krishna is really telling Arjun to, to get up and fight, to do the right thing. So Arjun's chariot can be seen as the physical body and the horses pulling it uh, are the five senses. Um, and later on, we'll hear more about the senses and the kind of this, and the different ways how they mess with us. Uh, but Krishna is with Arjuna on the chariot and um, Paramatma is always present in our heart. So we're never alone struggling with these questions. The answers are there if we can see them and find them. And on Arjuna's flag on the chariot is Hanuman, whose devotion to God, as we know, knows no limits. So we are invited to follow in their footsteps on the path of bhakti and go and fight. And uh, that's all that I wanted to share with you today. We have a few more minutes if you'd like to share any thoughts or comments on your personal uh, battlefields or anything that's come to your mind. I'll allow you all to unmute now if there's something you'd, you'd like to say. And of course, you can always use the chat as well. Do I see Brigo raising his hand? I think I do. 
Rebold, thank you very much for this this uh, class. I really liked uh, the way in which you picked out uh, these uh, central verses and spoke around them. Uh, I just thank have a small question about uh, about the Arjuna's chariot being the body and the five horses being the five senses. I always thought Prabhupada said it's not like that. That, that was an interpretation he really didn't like. But is that something that came out in maybe some other commentary? I most recently read it in uh, Sundar Gopal Prabhu's book. Uh, he mentions it here in the in Yoga and the Dark Night of the Soul, and uh, and I personally liked it. But but I'm sure you're correct, being more well well versed in the Shastra. Do you remember why Prabhupada disliked the idea? I think it's because uh, it's uh, you'll find it in, in many early Bhagavad Gitas, like in uh, Bhagavad Gitas translated by Theosophists and others. And they want to make the whole Bhagavad Gita into an allegory. Mm, I see. And this, of course, is something that Prabhupada uh, doesn't like at all, because then Krishna is no longer Krishna, he is uh, a symbol for the higher self or something like that. Yeah, I would see, yeah, I see why he would feel that way. I personally like to think that we can look at it on both levels simultaneously, the allegorical level and, and then the level of the Leela being the absolute truth I, for me, that's even more endearing to think that that there are these different levels to the text. Any other thoughts, complaints? Thank you. Thank you. Haribo Namarasana, did you have something you wanted yeah. to share? Happy to see you, Krishandi. Haribol. Haribol, you too. <laughs> so you mentioned that if you can change something, it's better not to worry about this. So I was thinking, what about the preaching mission and Sankirtan mission? Because it's about, uh, we worrying about others, yes? Uh, what about our sensitivity, about our empathy towards others? Because very often we couldn't change the life of people, but we feel this some kind of empathy or yeah, sensitivity. What do you think about this? Yeah, that is a really nice point that, that we need to be very careful sort of not to become arrogant and to think that we're dealing with higher topics and we shouldn't concern ourselves with people's petty everyday problems. But what I, I was maybe thinking more about things that we really can't change. Uh, you know, I have a lot of, having been in politics myself before, I have a lot of friends who are still in that world and very uh, closely following international news, international politics and getting really frustrated about the type of things that we really can't change from Finland. Like people 
a lot of people here follow US politics very closely and get very upset over things happening there that we really can't change since we don't live there and we can't affect the results of their elections. So that's, it, it was more like that type of things that I, I was thinking about that we're really powerless to do anything about. So it's like the serenity, the serenity prayer says, there are things that we can change that we can focus on. Like I was able to, just as, as a simple example, I was able to help out these two cyclists who would have had to sleep in, sleep in the cold forest and give them a warm meal obviously cooked by Kamalaksha, but I served it to them. But uh, so that was like a small practical thing where I could help. But if I had instead been sitting at home, endlessly scrolling through bad news from all around the world, I, that wouldn't have made any difference anyway. And I've more and more, you know, having been in politics and trying having tried to change things that way and uh, achieve very little despite the immense amounts of time and energy that I put into it I've sort of started to strongly feel that the real change that we can do like the real help we can give to people is to uh, to try to uh, become uh, better devotees to try to like extinguish that fire of you know that greed in ourselves so that we'll have more to give to others and uh, like to these days i feel that the, putting the same amount of effort into my sadhana that i used to put into politics will ultimately be a greater help for people partially because you know, I live in a country where we have a huge environmental footprint. I, I really, uh, just by not doing things, uh, I can make a difference by not uh, consuming so many things, uh, sort of reducing the impact that I have on the world. But at the same time, I... I, uh, I can also make a positive input by, by you know, becoming a more caring, more loving person with a, with a service attitude instead of the, you know, how Guru Maharaj always talks about the serving ego and the enjoying ego. So I've recognized that I'm a person with a pretty big enjoying ego and in some ways the change that I tried to achieve was also a way of my ego, you know, enjoying, feeling important and so on. I'm strictly speaking about myself. Obviously, and many other in politics will have sort of a higher felt that it's important to distinguish between things that, that we can and cannot change and, and make sure that that we're putting our efforts in the right place. I don't know if I've yes, answered thank you. at thank all. You. Thank you. Thank you.
Sakirati, please go ahead. Or is it Shamananda who has a question? Thank you so much for the class. It's just awesome. I really, really like it. And um, uh, just, uh, I wanted to say some follow-up regarding Namarasana um, question, because I recently heard from uh, Urmila Devi. She was saying that um, the world is perfectly balanced because otherwise karma wouldn't, it otherwise means the karma is, doesn't work. So all that we see that we perceive like, um, this is sad, this is terrible, this is this and that, it's just like, it's actually already balanced. And the only thing we can do in order to change this is through mercy, because uh, mercy is the only thing that we can give for free. Like you don't deserve mercy, don't get mercy out of karma. And uh, so in this way, she was saying like, if we really want to change and give an impact in the world, then we have to give mercy, just to be kind to the person near to you, or like you say, to be kind to these um, guys who just came to your place. So I just wanted to say that. <laughs> That's a nice point, thank you. One thing that also, one more thing that came to my mind is also that sometimes we, we want to fix problems that other people don't really necessarily feel that are even problems because we, we think that we know better. Like I've encountered this in when we've traveled in countries where people have a much lesser uh, income or, or the material sort of comforts in life aren't nearly on the same level as here in Finland. And, and I've noticed people feeling very sorry for me because of my disability pitying me you know the poor girl doesn't have legs and uh, while I pity them you know this poor person lives here in this difficult situation and in this poor country and so on so there's a mutual pity like with both parts sort of feeling that we know better that we we know what what how one should live one's life and so on so so we should also sort of respect that some people are happy with their situation even if you know i'm happy with my prosthetics even though all those people feel bad for me so i should be allowed to you know define whether i need their advice or help or not any other thoughts tonight If not, I'm super happy that so many of you joined me tonight and, uh, and participated in the discussion. And, and next week, uh, we'll continue uh, onwards from verse 19 and uh, into new solutions to all of life's problems. Thank you. And Haribo. Thank you. Jai. Jai. Haribo. Sri Guru Gauranga ki jai. Jai. Yeah.